You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. To kick off this week, Justin Bassey speaks to Director General of the International Committee of the Red Cross, Robert Mardini. They discuss the importance of neutrality to the ICRC's work, how the development of technology is impacting conflict, and the challenges international humanitarian actors face in getting access to affected populations. Well, it's an honour to be joined on the Australian Strategic Policy Institute podcast by Robert Mardini, Director General of the International Committee of the Red Cross, a position he assumed in March 2020. As head of the ICRC's directorate, he is responsible for leading global humanitarian operations with 22,000 staff in more than 100 countries. Robert, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, Robert, this is your first trip to Australia, so welcome, and you've been meeting with senior officials and the Assistant Foreign Minister. Can you talk us through uh, what you've been discussing and what your message is? Well, Justin, during my trip to Australia, I have been highlighting the impact of today's uh, conflicts on civilians alongside the challenges of humanitarian work in 2023 and into the future. Uh, In such complicated terrain, the support of the international community for humanitarian work, including Australia, is absolutely critical. So I'm here to discuss the humanitarian realities, objectives and challenges faced by the ICRC in more than 100 countries and share perspective uh, to provide also crucial humanitarian insights into conflicts on the ground and what ICRC views as ongoing and emerging trends. To encourage support for humanitarian action in the face of increasingly complex, protracted conflicts and compounding crises that have far-reaching effects, such as increased climate shocks, uh, the socioeconomic consequences of COVID-19, and now the global ripple effects of the Ukraine conflict. All these are compounding effects hitting the same people and same communities. And 2023 is already a year of vast humanitarian needs uh, that will continue to increase, unfortunately. The world cannot ignore these crises uh, that need sustained support and attention. And it is only with collective action from the international community that we will find solutions to these troubling trends. And Australia is an important humanitarian player and supporter. For 160 years, we have been on the side of humanity and our commitment to those impacted by armed conflict and violence will never waver. Uh, Our principle and international humanitarian law is here and is a very solid foundation to alleviate human suffering in war. We are here to reaffirm that and continue our constructive and warm relationship with Australia. Uh, that's, that's fabulous. You talk about the complexity of conflicts. They do seem to, unfortunately, becoming only more complex. One of the ICRC's fundamental humanitarian principles is that of neutrality. Russia's illegal war in Ukraine has seen the ICRC's neutrality position widely criticised over the past year. The president of Ukraine himself has said that the ICRC is not fulfilling its mandate. What's your response, Robert, to those specific criticisms that the ICRC is not actually doing enough in Ukraine? Well, the international armed conflict between Russia and Ukraine, uh, let me start by this, is really causing untold human suffering, loss of life, uh, damages, destructions. 
Uh, and over the past 12 months, millions of people have fled their homes, thousands have died and been injured, and civilian infrastructures have been heavily damaged and destroyed. We see this day in and day out. And for the past year, the Red Cross, Red Crescent movement has been responding to the humanitarian needs in Ukraine, uh, in bordering countries, and in the many places around the world where people who have fled from violence have settled. Thanks to the involvement of over uh, 124,000 volunteers and staff, the movement have been able to reach more than 14 million people with humanitarian assistance. And the ICRC's main priority has been to assist and to protect people affected by the devastating effects of the international armed conflict between uh, the Russian Federation and Ukraine, with a focus on the most vulnerable communities, including on both sides of the frontline areas. And today, uh, despite everything we hear, ICRC has its its largest operation in Ukraine. We are present in more than eight locations. We are doing everything we can and uh, working in uh, cities and localities very close to a very long front line, 1,003 kilometers uh, long. Uh, last weekend, uh, my colleagues and our teams were working with the Ukraine Red Cross to uh, support families and communities uh, just 10 kilometers from Bakhmut. Uh, so today we have access and we can make a real difference in in Ukraine precisely because we are a neutral and impartial humanitarian organization. The, uh, the volunteers do simply an amazing job. Uh, it's uh, all credit to them that put themselves in harm's way to try and relieve the suffering of others. If, if I can hone in on, on the importance of, of neutrality, uh, which uh, you've written in the past is is uh, has been misunderstood and at times misrepresented. In the geostrategic realm, uh, Robert, often neutrality can be used by states and governments to remain silent and and not call out other countries uh, for human rights violations. Uh, one of the quotes uh, that you've written uh, that I think really expresses it well uh, is that neutrality does not command silence. Humanitarians can and have publicly condemned actions such as the bombing of a hospital without compromising their neutrality. I, I really wish at times that governments could see that distinction. Can you take us through neutrality a bit more, how leaders such as you seek to alleviate the suffering of those in conflict without giving those causing the suffering a pass? No, thank you. This is an important question. And um of all our principles, neutrality is maybe the least understood. And how can anyone not take sides in the face of suffering and injustice? How can anyone provide support to people who sympathize with the enemy? And how can anyone speak to all sides of a conflict? In reality, humanitarian organizations actually do take sides. We always take sides of the most vulnerable, uh, of the people impacted by conflict and violence. We take the sides of children, of families, of individuals who find themselves in situations through no fault of their own that many of us cannot even imagine. So the purpose of humanitarian action, of our action, uh, is really to prevent and alleviate human suffering uh, wherever it may be found. And neutrality is one of the ways to do this. Neutrality is not a moral stance. Um, it is an operating principle for the ICRC that allows us to carry out our work, our essential work. It's, it's basically our 
license to to operate. Um, as, as a neutral, impartial humanitarian actor, ICRC is mandated to speak with all sides of a conflict, to advocate for respect of international humanitarian law, to have the hard conversations with parties to the conflict uh, uh, with regards to their obligations uh, under uh, the Geneva Conventions, to protect civilian lives and to ensure aid reaches those most in need. And it is so important that uh, we are able to speak uh, to people who make and influence decisions impacting the lives of victims of armed conflict and our ability to reach them. Uh, we conduct such humanitarian diplomacy and bilateral dialogue all over the world uh, in relation to every conflict where we are trying to assist and protect victims. Uh, because And because of this approach, we have been able to help people suffering from the horrors of conflict wherever they may be. So our principles, neutrality, impartiality, humanity, independence, make things such as the release of the Chibok girls happen in Nigeria. The visit of Nelson Mandela in his detention facility take place at the height of apartheid, or to be able to bring human remains of fighters and combatants to their families in conflicts like Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, Lebanon, Israel. It's possible because we were able to walk the talk of neutrality and overcome some of the perceptions that exist by people, by warring sides. And this is having a concrete impact on the ground. And now we are also facilitating the exchange of uh, human remains in Ukraine. Uh, we are doing this in full transparency and in solid cooperation with military Russian uh, forces and military Ukrainian forces. It's part of our role. And very often we hear uh, in highly polarized contexts and conflict from both sides that we are not neutral, which I think to me is a good indicator that we actually are. Uh, well, I think our listeners, Robert, uh, will take heart that with your quote that you do actually take sides, but also understand that you still need a license to operate uh, and perhaps it shows the absolute importance of partnerships and where governments and organisations like ASPE need to be the ones that really do uh, call out countries, uh, regimes, governments for their human rights abuses and, and violations. You commented there about uh, that the purpose of humanitarian action is to alleviate human suffering wherever it may be found it's interesting because human suffering is also growing online uh, with development of technology impacting conflict, both in terms of the tools used by combatants and the tools to help victims. The access and reach enabled by technology and cyberspace is obviously extraordinary, uh, but it's also abused by those responsible for conflict and suffering. Social media not only allows the vulnerable to participate in global debate, but it's used to spread disinformation and distrust in societies. Data flows and facial recognition can help the lost and vulnerable, but is all too often used to surveil, target and repress. So while the traditional role of humanitarian organisations like the ICRC is to alleviate suffering in the field, as you say, with so much conflict and suffering occurring online, what role do you see for humanitarian organisations to alleviate the suffering caused online? And, and how must organisations like yours continue to adapt to ensure that the humanitarian principles remain relevant in contemporary conflict? Our role is indeed to work 
and do everything we can to alleviate suffering and provide assistance to people impacted by armed conflict and protect them from harm through the respect uh, of the rules of war. And to be clear, the humanitarian principles that form the foundation of our work still remain as relevant today as they have been uh, for 160 years. It is the implementation of these protections and principles that evolves And today we see that armed conflict are spilling into new spaces. Cyberspace is one. Yeah. Uh, misinformation, disinformation, hate speech is also something that is part of uh, the reality of armed conflict today. And those, they have very real impacts in the physical world. Hospitals that can't operate, water supplies disrupted or tainted, Uh, power outages. In these situations, humanitarian aid, whether it is medical supplies or clean drinking water, uh, remain absolutely critical. One way implementation of IHL, International Humanitarian Law, is uh, adapting is uh, through the idea of a digital emblem, for instance, the digital Red Cross, Red Crescent emblem, which should make it clear to militaries and hackers that they are entering the computer system of a protected uh, body. Um, this, is, this is something that we are currently developing because we need also to ensure that impartial, independent and neutral action can take place in, uh, in the cyberspace. Uh, we need to ensure that uh, we can uh, push back when there is misinformation, disinformation that is first and foremost harming civilians uh, affected by armed conflict and our ability as humanitarians uh, to operate. It is, it's uh, such a, a vital but complex role for both governments, organisations to be able to first identify uh, and then push back, as you say, on misinformation and disinformation uh, online once once such disinformation starts to spread, it's uh, awfully difficult to uh, to claw back. So very interesting uh, and heartening to hear that uh, an organisation like yours that's so used to uh, uh, alleviating suffering uh, on the battlefield or in conflict zones uh, uh, is also focused online. If we can stay online uh, for uh, in the online world for a moment, cyber attacks and use of cyberspace to carry out, carry out operations, as you say, including disinformation, are unfortunately now increasingly common. The ICRC's central tracing agency uh, has the sensitive data of people living through conflicts around the world. And, and that tracing agency, Robert, as I understand, was subject to a cyber attack in late 2021. With cyberspace now so integral to conflicts, both in terms of access and threats, how does a humanitarian organisation like the ICRC manage this balance and still carry out their important uh, work safely? Now, that's a very uh, important question. And, and it's important that uh, humanitarian action in current warfare, we are able to have a balancing act between leveraging technology to improve our humanitarian action and at the same time ensure that by leveraging technology, we are not exposing people who are, yeah. whom we are supposed to, to protect to additional harm. And in armed conflict, places like medical and humanitarian facilities need uh, to be protected under 
international humanitarian law in cyberspace as uh, they need to be protected in the physical space. Um, as I mentioned earlier, the idea of a digital emblem is really to develop a digital sign to identify and signal protection of primarily medical facilities and to incorporate it into international uh, legal framework. A digital emblem would add a layer of protection against cyber operations, just as the Red Cross, Red Crescent, or Red Crystal emblems do it in the physical world, when we put a big flag on the roof of a hospital in a conflict zone. So it is important to understand that a digital emblem is not a, cyber a technical cybersecurity measure that actually protects systems against intrusion or damage. It is a sign of legal protection. Uh, this means other cybersecurity measures would need to be implemented at the same time. And since the, the cyber attack that actually shook us to the core because it compromised sensitive personal data of real individuals, uh, putting them in harm's way, we have been doubling down on reinforcing our cybersecurity as an organization. But at the same time, we need to uh, sharpen our influencing work to ensure that international humanitarian law is also applicable in the cyberspace. And this is precisely what we are doing in the multilateral uh, arena, making the case with states that if an armed conflict is taking place, uh, the rules of four, international humanitarian law, is also applicable in the cyberspace. Cyberspace is not a space of lawlessness. It's a space that should be and must be regulated, including in times of uh, armed conflict. It's uh, really well said, uh, Robert, and, and clearly the, the rule of law that applies offline has got to also apply online. So uh, the, the protection of systems and the protection of people go hand in hand. We've recently seen how humanitarian aid convoys uh, can be blocked from reaching people desperately in need. Access to affected populations, people living through war, is a major challenge that international humanitarian actors face. How does the ICRC navigate those challenges? It's about building trust on the ground. It's about engaging with all sides of a conflict, be them non-international armed conflict between states and armed groups or interstate conflicts or international armed conflicts such as the one raging between uh, Russia and Ukraine today. It's about building that trust so that we can navigate uh, the, the complexity and the challenges of armed conflict, to be able to cross front lines, to be able to support communities living on the other side with um, a reasonable level of, of security and with the understanding that our work is understood and accepted uh, by parties to the conflict. Uh, a lot of the time, the, in the more remote areas, uh, the less access people have to basic services uh, in the first place. And in Africa, uh, the ICRC estimates today that some 26 million people live actually in areas where access to humanitarian aid and basic services is, uh, is fragile. Combined to this uh, with conflict or violence damaging what does not uh, exist uh, and you have a crisis. Uh, in a place like Syria today, only 52% of hospitals are operating after uh, uh, more than a decade of, of armed conflict. So we need to factor in all these 
parameters to prioritize our action and be able to to invest where uh, people are most vulnerable and are in need of uh, this critical support. Again, you uh, highlight why organizations like yours do need to engage, as you say, uh, all sides of conflict, uh, which inevitably means both the aggressor and the victims, um, while uh, going back to your uh, one of your earlier comments, uh, doesn't mean that you don't take sides, uh, but you do need to uh, engage to actually ensure that some of the, the most vulnerable uh, are getting uh, what they need. Uh, just wondering, um, uh, understand there's a, a, a push towards localization within the international humanitarian aid space, uh, which uh, is shifting the power into the hands of local aid workers. How does that run with an international actor like the ICRC? And does it impact uh, how the ICRC maybe uh, may have an ongoing relevance? Well, I think if, if you look carefully at the Red Cross, Red Crescent movement and the ICRC was at the origin of the creation of the wider, widest uh, humanitarian network with more than 15 million volunteers today. Uh, and I think if you look at the Red Cross, Red Crescent movement, it's, uh, it's a movement uh, where you see uh, the combination of local action by local actors in the most remote places combined in some circumstances to uh, international components such as the ICRC, which has a very clear role. Uh, we have been given a mandate by all states to be the guardian of the Geneva Conventions and to, to ensure that they are respected on the ground. And so, so I don't see a contradiction and uh, we will we are always investing more in national Red Cross and Red Crescent societies, investing in developing their capacities to be able to, to do more uh, because they are the most effective players on the ground. They know the culture, they know the realities uh, on the ground. And uh, this is a longstanding support of us, of uh, uh, the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent societies, of some participating national societies who also contribute to this effort. But at the same time, there are situations where you have uh, such a level of polarization, uh, where everything is so much politicized that there are actions where even local actors will tell you, we're happy that actually ICRC is here to visit detention facilities. We need your support in this space. Uh, and I think it's uh, a meaningful humanitarian action based on the principles of the Red Cross, Red Crescent movement requires a, a very strong uh, local component and a locally led action uh, and a very strong uh, international component. I, I don't see a contradiction in this. Uh, it, it's a balancing act that depends on uh, on the situation. And there are maybe contexts where uh, there is no such level of polarization and where the vast majority of action can be actually led by National Red Cross, Red Crescent, or local NGOs and other situations where you need uh, an important component. Th this is also the case in internal conflict, non-international armed conflicts, where I remember in the beginning of the uh, conflict in Syria, 
the Syrian Red Crescent was not accepted in some places of the country that started to be under the control of the opposition. And uh, we worked hand in hand. And the, the, the acid test was when we were able to go together and to cross the front line from uh, Western Aleppo to Eastern Aleppo and, and deliver aid together. And this was not possible in the first years of the conflict uh, because the polarization was such that the National Red Crescent Society was perceived as being close to the government in opposition-controlled areas and vice versa. Uh, the same branches of this Red Crescent Society in opposition-controlled areas were perceived as taking sides also. And, and the ICRC is here really to ensure that the work of the the movement is impartial and we take sides only with the civilians affected. That's the only side we take. Robert, uh, in your answer, you mentioned Syria. And of course, uh, the complexity of the Syrian uh, conflict was not just about governments, uh, but uh, a, uh, a very powerful uh, and malign non-state actor in ISIL, uh, which was very, very active. Uh, what uh, additional challenges does a non-state actor like ISIL pose to a humanitarian organization like yours? Well, the ICRC has a role and a mandate to engage with all parties to the conflict, be them states or non-state armed groups. And uh, just to give you a figure, uh, on average every year, ICRC teams on the ground engage with more than 500 different non-state armed groups globally uh, in, in the 100 countries where uh, we, are, we are present. And those groups control territory where more than 170 million people live, very often uh, in places where critical services from central government uh, do not reach and where uh, people happen to be in urgent need of support. Uh, and this is why this dialogue with all sides of the conflicts, uh, and uh, sometimes we have more complex dialogue with some groups than others, is so critical because you need to be accepted by them. You need to build trust. It doesn't mean that you agree with everything they say. Uh, we also have an ambition to have a dialogue on uh, their obligations under the rules of four. Uh, but this is an important part of uh, of the work of, of ICRC because the vast majority of conflicts today driving humanitarian needs are actually non-international armed conflicts, which are conflict between uh, a state and one or more uh, different armed groups. And very often it's there are conflict between and among armed groups in one in one country or one region. It is very interesting, of course, uh, when you say that you need to be accepted by groups like ISIL. It, it clearly doesn't mean that you have to accept ISIL. Uh, it just means, uh, Robert, I take it that you need to be able to, at times, work with them to get to those who are most vulnerable. That's absolutely critical. I mean, we, we always have an ambition to, to have a dialogue with all groups on humanitarian access, which is the short-term goal to help people and communities, but also to have uh, the other conversations about uh, the importance to respect uh, international humanitarian law, the importance to ensure that uh, they detain people they capture and they treat them humanely. And this is the ambition of ICRC with all, with all groups. 
while, while some might find it uh, challenging and confronting, it does also, again, show uh, the uh, the risk that your volunteers uh, put themselves through uh, to uh, to reach those uh, in need of help. Yeah, uh, it uh, it makes sense. You have to break down a lot of barriers, and uh, uh, it only works if you've got the the local and the international working hand in hand. Just as it's the case that you need governments and civil society actors working together uh, as well. We we tend to focus a lot uh, on international armed conflicts. Uh, and we uh, of course have a major focus at the moment on uh, Russia's war on Ukraine, but it also follows that climate change touches every aspect of our lives, and including international relations and humanitarian operations. What are ICRC's predictions on how climate change uh, will interact with conflict and humanitarian work? Well, actually, it's already happening because. Uh, of the 25 countries uh, that are today considered as being the most vulnerable to climate change and where people and communities are actually the, the least equipped to absorb the shocks, uh, 14 are already countries that are uh, torn by, by conflict. So, uh, so communities are, are facing the challenges of the compounded effects of conflict and climate change. And the, uh, they find themselves caught in a vicious cycle of violence that that is fueled uh, or exacerbated by the consequences of climate change when you have uh, agronomists and pastoralists uh, fighting over shrinking uh, water resources or grazing lands. Uh, we, we see that this fuels existing tensions and existing conflicts. By 2050, 200 million people could need international humanitarian aid every day. Uh, and this is a doubling compared to 2018, partly due to climate change. Uh, in Cambodia, climate change is complicating demining efforts, for instance. Uh, uh, unexploded devices are uh, littered across the landscape from past conflicts and with floods and landslides, unexploded ordinances, uh, cluster munition mines are moving through the soil, which has been previously cleared and can be recontaminated. The obstacles uh, that states dealing with conflict and climate change face are overwhelmingly high, uh, but so are the solutions. And that is good news. We know that collective action is the only way to avert uh, the most disastrous consequences on people and their environment. Uh, so support must be given to help people living in fragile state adapt to climate change and mitigate uh, its effects. So uh, we are. this is the reason why we are advocating that uh, climate finance and climate action should really reach those most vulnerable communities uh, that are already affected by conflict because they are in urgent need of support to build their resilience to absorb those uh, compounded effects. In, in the Indo-Pacific, climate change and the impact of climate change is uh, often at the top of people's lists of security priorities. So your advocacy uh, around uh, organisations such as yourselves working with others and governments uh, around the impact and to mitigate the impact of climate change will be music to the ears of many in this region. Uh, and as, as I understand it, uh, Robert, uh, while it's your, your first trip to Australia, straight after this, you'll, you'll also be having making your first trip to New Zealand. Absolutely. And I'm very looking forward to it. Uh, well, hopefully uh, both Australia and New Zealand uh, we're both very happy that you've uh, visited both of us uh, for the first time, but uh, hopefully uh, it'll be the first of, of many 
uh, the uh, message from uh, you as Director General of the ICRC is vitally important, breaking down those misunderstandings of the differences and the different roles between humanitarian organisations like yours, the roles to be played by government, the roles to be played by the private sector is, uh, is really important to understand. Uh, wish you the very best of luck uh, in your role uh, and I hope the rest of your visit goes very, very well. Thank you very much, uh, Justin, for having me. It was a pleasure and uh, keep up the great work at ASPI. Thanks very much. In the second half of today's episode, Dr. Alex Bristow speaks to Vice Admiral Louise Dedekin, Norwegian military representative to NATO. They discuss opportunities for progress in the global women, peace and security agenda, NATO's online presence and how they are combating disinformation, and NATO's views on Russia's war on Ukraine. Welcome to ASPE, Admiral Dedekin. Did you say this is your first time in Australia? It is. And I'm so pleased to be invited. So, um, in fact, I was invited by your Chief of Defence. So, uh, I'm extremely grateful. And what I've seen so far only makes me want to come back to Australia. Oh, fantastic. So, Admiral, you have had a a glittering career, um, including running the Defence University College in in Norway and, and I think you were the, the, the first woman of any nationality to serve on the NATO's uh, military committee. And amongst your many achievements have been bringing the women, peace and security agenda to the forefront of, of everybody's mind. Having been in Australia for a, a little while, do you have any sense on how Australia is tackling this, this important topic of women, peace and security? I have to say that I am very much impressed. And I think that if you would like to succeed in those kind of difficult questions. So for an organization, such uh, strategic uh, work needs to start from the top. And then again, back to your chief of defense, I'm convinced that his take on these questions, that is something that you could see throughout the organization. So he takes these questions extremely seriously. And um, only uh, from the group of experts that I've been talking to today and dealing with gender, peace and security, and all the uh, gender advisors, I think that Australia is at a very mature level when it comes to these questions. And then that is about everything, about it goes from policies and also down to specific items as how women can dress when they are military. And I would so much like to copy the way you have introduced a one-piece dress for women. And that is extremely important because I think it goes for all nations now that we face problems of both recruiting women, but also to retain them in the organization. And if you really would like to both recruit and retain, well, then you need to listen to what does it take? I mean, how can I, you know, provide an every day for you so that you would like to stay and work for me? And just how you dress every day is also a very important part of that. Yes. One of the points that came out in the discussion we were just having uh, before this podcast was that there's a, a critical mass. Is that the correct term? Yes. Mm. If you can't, it is necessary to get representation of women up to a certain level before people really feel comfortable in their environment. Is that, is that, a, is that a fair yes, way absolutely. of... Yeah. Um, so is there anything that's worth drawing out for our audience about that critical mass concept? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, numbers count. So 
I think that the representation in the ADF is around 20%, which is quite impressive. Most other countries, they, uh, they do not do that well. Uh, so less than 20% is um, named being a token because, you know, you're not up to a certain level that you're not even a minority. If you're above 20%, then we're talking about a minority. But if you really would like to uh, make an impact, then you need to reach a level of 33.33%. And I think that we, uh, it's fair to say that we all have a, quite a way to go. Excellent. I'm going to say a third for convenience because mm. I struggle with the recurring yeah. <laughs> freeze. But you mentioned just briefly the the nomenclature, the way we talk about women, peace and security, and that there are some differences in the in the approach. And I know our Defence Department has moved to gender, peace and security. Mm. And I think women, peace and security seems, seems to be preferred in, in the UN system still. But mm. in NATO, is this concept of human security, is that correct? Has, has That's correct. And also women, peace and security as such is mentioned for the first time in the strategic concept. And that is quite an achievement. And I also have to add that these questions are basically dealt with in the political sphere of NATO. So NATO is both a military and political organization. And my work in the military committee is then obviously on the military side. So on the political side of the house, uh, they do quite an impressive work in this field. And then I'm looking forward to see that we also on the military side, that we will uh, mainstream also that into all our work strands. Excellent. Mm. I, I think a lot of the attention on the NATO strategic concept here in Australia was about, I think, the, the inclusion of China. Yeah. Um, but, but there is obviously a lot of, of, of new areas in that, including the inclusion of women, peace and security that we should be paying more attention to here in Australia. We were touching in our discussion previously about the war in Ukraine, a war that women have been at the forefront of. I don't know if there's any observations that you've made of, of what's been happening in Ukraine and the contribution that mm. women have been making to the defense of Ukraine. Well, uh, it's a fact that, you know, uh, among the warriors in Ukraine today, 22% of them are women. So at the end of the day, you know, when there's a war, then we need all hands. So to take it seriously, that we will need the best from the best. So then we'll have to look also to the women. So it's only a very smart thing to do, to train women fighters as well. And you have seen that uh, earlier in your own history in Australia. We had the uh, great opportunity to, to visit your war memorial uh, the first day of the visit here. And I mean, the contribution of Australian women during the Second World War was just impressive. And that goes for almost any country. That is something that we tend to forget. So after a war that everything goes back to normal. But I mean, to create a substantial and uh, a good performing armed forces, then you should also include women. Absolutely. I think the term that's stuck in my mind, and it's it's not mine, I'm going to steal this from one of my colleagues, uh, is uh, it's an asymmetric advantage that it we is. have. Yeah. Uh, and we were discussing previously how Countries like Russia are taking a very different approach, despite their history, their Soviet history and the great patriotic war against the Germans, where they, they like to sort of um, emphasize the, the role of women partisans and, and, mm. and women in the front line. Actually, what Russia seems to be doing now is 
a very patriarchal mm. gendered approach where mm. it's appealing to to the men of Russia to somehow defend their their families and they're trying putting women in the in in front of cameras to uh so grandmothers and, and mothers in front of cameras to sort of tell the sons of Russia to go and fight, a very gendered approach. And, and obviously Ukraine not taking that approach and, and including women in the military and throughout their defense effort. And I hope winning, I hope mm. Ukraine is winning. It's too mm. early to say for sure, but certainly performing better than everybody thought. And presumably one of the reasons is this asymmetric advantage that Ukraine has. Yes, I totally agree. And I, I don't think that we have any reason to be impressed about the leadership on the military side, uh, on the Russian side. So uh, what we've been witnessing is more lack of good leadership. And I mean, uh, they have not impressed when it comes to logistical supply and planning. Or uh, So, I mean, they have done very, very many grave mistakes. On the Ukrainian side, on the other hand, it is so many reasons to be impressed First of all, I mean, for the morale in, in the population in general, and also extremely good leadership. But it's worthwhile mentioning that even though the country is at war, military education carries on. It not only carries on, but it's still under development. So this question about women, peace and security, or gender questions in general, and the need for both men and women at war, that is including included in the development of their military education. And at the end of the day, so the difference will be so big between the Ukrainian way of doing it opposed to the Russian way of doing it. So I think this will be part of the key and leading to a Ukrainian victory at the end of the day. Well, let's certainly hope so. And um, am I correct in saying that I think Norway has been one of those countries that's been supporting the military education in Ukraine for some time now and continues to do so? Yes, we do. So we have had a um, cooperation with um, the military um, uh, educational institutions in Ukraine for quite a few years now. Although, I mean, we don't take credit for this evolution that I was just alluding to. To have this cooperation is vital not only for Ukraine, but also for Norway. So just to, to learn from, I mean, the recent experiences at war, I think it's worthwhile listening to. So uh, my deepest respect for the Ukrainian way of, uh, of doing it. Absolutely. I wondered if we could just maybe just stay on Norway for a, for a second. I think one of the lessons I've learned from what's going on in Europe at the moment is the Nordic countries seem to understand Russia in a way that parts of Western and Southern Europe haven't really historically, and th that actually much of the consensus that Europe is generating about how to push back against Russia is, is, is being led by places like the Baltic countries and, and, and Scandinavia. Norway has a border with Russia, but it is also obviously hugely involved in the Arctic region, an area that you've studied before do you have any any thoughts or concerns about what's going on in the in the Arctic at the moment? Uh, Australia tends to concentrate on the Antarctic, so there may be some crossovers. But is there anything that's worth bringing to our attention about the Arctic space? Well, first of all, to point out the geography. So uh, NATO in the north, that is, as of today, basically Norway, who who is NATO in the north. 
soon to be followed, I hope, both by Sweden and Finland. So from the Norwegian perspective, uh, neighboring Russia, we never took our eyes off Russia. So we've been constantly uh, aware of um, looking at what is going on in Russia. And, you know, the um, great amounts of nuclear weapons that they have just on the other side of the border, that is something that we have had attention to at all times. As it comes to your question uh, with uh, what is going on in the Arctic, so global warming and climate change affects the Arctic severely, meaning that the ice is melting also much quicker than we have tended to, uh, to envisage. So this opens up for new sea roads. So what we see up in the north is that we all of a sudden we are on a new uh, naval highway, so to speak. So um, the cooperation we have had throughout quite a few years with the Russians, it has been quite successful when it comes to cooperation on search and rescue and also on um, uh, fisheries. So that has been successful. What we would like to learn more about from you, actually, is what's going on on the Chinese side. Because it's only to have a look at the map again to, uh, to understand that this will be extremely uh, useful naval highway also for the Chinese. So uh, I'm more than happy to ask you, actually. Well, I'm not sure I have the answer yet. Um, Aspie is very happy to be part of a partnership with NATO and some think tanks in other countries, a long-running partnership over the next 18 months or so that we'll be looking at some of these issues, the links mm. between European and Indo-Pacific security. Mm. I think the Arctic is one area we should have in mind. I think Russia has capabilities there, including relevant to their nuclear forces, mm. that I think China's experience China would love to get hold of that expertise from Russia. I believe that Russia has held back some information sharing in the past on a mm. range of technologies, but maybe in its current circumstances, it, it wouldn't mm. hold back and it mm. would, for example, help facilitate uh, China having greater access to the Arctic. So mm. I think there's lots of things we should concentrate on there. And of course, Australia has lots of experience in managing China in the Antarctic, where yep. China is a uh, signatory of the Antarctic Treaty, but not necessarily keeping to all its terms. There are all sorts of potential technologies that China is deploying in the Antarctic that could have military utility. Mm. So, so I think we should definitely watch this space and, mm. and uh, continue to to talk about the polar regions yep. and to share expertise between Europe and NATO and, and uh, the countries of, of, of the Indo-Pacific. It's really encouraging to me that NATO seems to be now set on always inviting the Asia-Pacific Four, mm. uh, the leaders of uh, Australia, New Zealand, South Korea and Japan, mm. to, uh, to your summits. I, I wholly expect that uh, Prime Minister Albanese will be, uh, will be going if he can. So, yeah. Just a uh, last remark. Did you also know that Norway has a share of Antarctic, uh, Antarctica? I should know that. Yeah. I shouldn't know that. <laughs> so approximately 13%, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken. So it's Queen Maudslam. Oh, excellent. Even more reason to be talking to Europe and the Norwegians exactly. in particular about yeah. Antarctica. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Admiral, for coming in. I think that's all we've got time for uh, today, but uh, hopefully this, this discussion can continue. Thank you very much. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. We'll be back with another episode soon. Thanks for listening. <laughs>